Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Hi everyone, welcome to Media Mayhem. Today we have a really great guest who is with us all the way from London, so we won't have to deal with the Skype situation. He's been here before, it's author Dan Jones. He's an award-winning author, and he is the author of his latest book called Wars of the Roses. So welcome. Thank you, nice to be back. I'm glad you're here so we could talk a lot about kings and queens and, and all things, um, and, and bodice ripping and all those types of things. <laughs> Rip away. Let's this go. is my yeah. favorite area of uh, history, as and as my kids will tell you. And, but I think the major thing, you guys, that you that I really like about Dan's books is that while they are completely historically accurate, and he's done a tremendous amount of research to write them, they actually read like they're fiction. I mean, it's just real good well-crafted storytelling, and you'll see that as we talk about different things. But first of all, let me just start off and, and ask you, and I know some of the, of the people that have watched our show know a little bit about why you write in this period, but what is it about this period of history that interested you so much? You wrote about the Plantagenets, and now we have Wars of the Roses. Well, this kind of follows on from Plantagenets, the first book, but um, I guess I just loved all these stories from the Middle Ages, from right when I started studying them, like 15 years ago now. Um, and everyone's kind of obsessed with the Tudors, right? We've all heard about Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn and Elizabeth I and all that. And I just always felt there were these, this kind of mine of stories a few centuries before just sitting there waiting to be told. And it's, you know, Henry II and Beckett, the Magna Carta, Hundred Years' War, the Wars of the Roses, which is what the new book's about, um, the Black Death. You know, it's just this huge list of stories that I guess people might have heard of but probably don't know just how kind of thrilling the actual stories are. So... The opportunity to just sit and write, you know, these two great books covering that whole period. Well, it's, I mean, it's great. So, how hard is it to get to this kind of research? I mean, in terms of, I mean, we talked about this a little bit before, but if you're doing the tutors, you're like a lot closer. There's a lot of more well-preserved, I would imagine, documents, um, and and we also, you know, I mean, there, there's a lot more that's been written, and it's kind of interesting, as you say, or rewritten about mm. the history that came before, um, but. How difficult is it to do the actual research for this period of time? It actually gets easier and easier. Obviously, it gets easier as you go forward. So this is about the 15th century compared to like writing about the 12th century. There's just a lot more material. Uh, there's still some chronicles. There's lots of legal records. You can hear the voices for the first time. So this book starts with Henry V. Uh, and Henry V actually writes back from campaign uh, in, or dictates these letters in English. And he's the first king really to do that. And you kind of hear the voice for the first time. Like other kings you might have heard, you know, you, you can read sort of letters and uh, documents associated with these figures. But for the first time, really, with Henry V, you hear his voice. And it is, you know, Shakespeare made him that kind of very strident, uh, uh, rhetorical kind of military leader. And you, when you read the, the, the letters that he dictated, you kind of get that. Certainly when you compare them with his other, with letters from his, his other kind of captains commanders who are really sort of clunky and, and terrible. And you, you get to understand 
the character. So the material gets is better in the 15th century. Um, Let's talk a little bit about Henry V. Yeah, sure. Because I think this is where you begin, and basically he seems to be like our the last, the best king in this book, pretty much. I mean, the best king that we've seen in a while. And and it's, some of that is because of his you know war victories. He's a great um, leader and general in in war, but. Talk a little bit about how and why he is the best king at the at the at the beginning of this period of the book, and and how things start to go downhill after him, and why that is. It's quite funny. I was actually standing around at a book launch with a load of other historians the other night, and this, this is going to sound really really sad, but we're actually <laughs> playing rank your best medieval kings, and Henry V comes out top. He comes out. It, it is really sad. There's no doubt. It is sad. We are sad, <laughs> but nevertheless, Henry V comes out top because. You're measured on, on two things, three things as a medieval king. You know, measured on protecting the church, uh, on um, keeping order at home and, and dispensing justice. But really, in this period, as a military leader, you know, masculinity is about fighting. Uh, being, being a great leader is about generally being a great warrior. And at this point, going out and fighting the French. And Henry V does that in a way that no one else has managed through the whole of the period beforehand. Uh, he conquers, effectively conquers the French crown. The Treaty of Troyes in 1420 is an agreement which says the French, the mad French king, Charles VI's son, is now disinherited. He's not going to be the next French king. Henry V, the king of England, will be, is the heir to the French throne. He's the heir to two crowns, and his son will be after him. And the, these two crowns will be joined together. I mean, that's, in, that's crazy. Which and, was the goal, all the, I mean, they kept trying to do it and not succeeding. Well, it's been the stated goal of the Hundred Years' War. Whether actually people meant it or not, um, I don't know, because it, it's a good sort of, uh, it's a good reason to keep fighting for territorial gain by claiming, you know, the ultimate prize is going to be the crown of France. And I think a lot of people fighting in this war on the English side thought, yeah, but I mean, we're never going to win the crown of France. That's crazy. Henry V goes and does it. He actually does it. And for 30 years, there's an English kingdom of France. I mean, that's, that's quite astonishing. And at the same time as doing that, he manages to keep uh, order, unity at home, to kind of bring his country along with him on this incredibly expensive and, you might say, sort of hubristic uh, military enterprise. So, and ultimately, um, he gets married. Mm -hmm. And let's talk a little bit about... Um, he gets married, but he never gets to see his baby. I mean, so there is a, a hubris to it. I mean, where he could have like ended and stopped finally, and uh, the baby is born and he passes. So, um, why is it that? Yeah, I mean, if you want to talk a little bit about how that shapes how who he left his power in the hands of, and that we have the birth of the heir to the kingdom of both England and France, but it's like a little infant, which I think is really a, a great the way you describe it and talk about who's left on the playing field after he dies. So imagine, um, I guess, uh, that the Queen, Prince Charles, Prince William, uh, all are sort of uh, fighting in France and get dysentery and die. Okay, they, they're out of the picture suddenly. It, it would be like being left right now with Prince George as the King of England, okay? Except that in the 15th century, the King actually has to do stuff and has a sort of a, a serious political, active political role. So that's what you have in 1422 when Henry V dies of dysentery on campaign while he's fighting like he always is fighting. Uh, you have Henry VI, his son, whom, whom as you say, he's never met, becomes... I thought uh, that was sad. It is yeah. sad. <laughs> it is sad. Uh, 
becomes king of England at nine months, ten months old. And around him, the rest of the country somehow has to deal with this because he's not only king of England, he's now also king of France because the French king dies very shortly afterwards. So for the first time, you've got a king who's the king of both realms, and that king is nine months old. I mean, it's, it's a very, very difficult situation. However, what's interesting, you, you, know, you might think, OK, well, in that case, why don't the Wars of the Roses break out in the 1420s? And that's what, I'm trying to, that's what I try to get to in the book, is to say this isn't a war that's just about the phrases over mighty nobles. Nobles come in to, to try and take the throne because they fancy a bit of power. It's not really Game of Thrones, although that's what, what this, obviously what the, the Game of Thrones is based on is this period. Because for 30 years, really, you have the nobles uh, and the sort of political community in England, instead of trying to snatch the throne, they pull together. They pull together and keep hold of a situation in which, firstly, the king is a child for 18 years. But, but before you go on, too, Henry V, I mean, as he's dying, has mm. set up a system. I mean, he's aware that he's dying, so he kind of made some provisions to try to keep everything together. So I think that, I mean, sure. let's like, discuss that as well. So we have a, a baby, an infant, and everybody's pulling together, but isn't that based mostly on the fact that Henry V has put certain people in charge, well, as he knows? Or partly. Uh, I mean, Henry V, as he's dying, as, as kings who are dying are wont to do, tries to manipulate the future after he's gone. So his brother, he has, he has two surviving brothers. He has his brother Bedford, uh, Duke of Bedford, whom, who he leaves in charge in France. Very capable and, and a, a good choice. And he, he tries, it would seem to leave his brother Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, in charge at home. But actually, after he's dead, um, the rest of the nobles at home say that, recognize that that's quite a dangerous situation, partly because of the sort of person that Humphrey Duke of Gloucester is, and partly because you don't really want one person operating royal power for potentially the best part of 20 years. So there's a conciliar system set up in which Gloucester is uh, given a sort of grand title and, and preeminence. However, really, this is, this is about a council ruling, and it's, it's remarkable that that is done and that is maintained, and every time there's tension between Gloucester and, and uh, and, and Beaufort, and, well, partly his brother and partly um, one of his relatives, Henry Beaufort, Bishop of Winchester, they're slapped down. They're slapped down. Bedford, uh, Bedford will come back from France to slap them down. Uh, the council will make sure that order is kept and that government is continued in an orderly fashion as far as possible during the minor minority. And it's really extraordinary because we think of this period as, you know, warlords and, and ambition, and it's much more politically sophisticated than that, and that goes right through into the 1440s as well, although in a slightly different form. I mean, even when, when, when Queen Elizabeth is there, there is a council always. So is this left over from this period of time, or was the council in place before Henry V? I mean, that, that, that council that, like, forms to try to keep... I mean, she ever, there's always, like, in, 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 there's always a council that she has to deal with and a group of men that she has to... Are we talking about Elizabeth I? Yes. Right, yeah, I'm sorry. That, yeah, 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 so I'm just wondering, is that, uh, is the predecessor this group, uh, this, or not? Sort of, yeah. I mean, the Privy Council under Elizabeth I is, a, I suppose, it's a bit like a cabinet. Um, and this th is different than this that? Is, this is similar to that. You know, it meets to, to transact government business. So, okay. it, yes, effectively, the two things are joined, and the, and the Privy Council of Elizabeth I grows out of... Uh, royal councils of the period before. Okay, so now we have a dead king and we have his wife who begins to play also a very interesting role. So, um, I, and and I think, I think it's Catherine, right? Is the, Catherine de Valois. Yes, yeah. Catherine de Valois. Valois, yeah. Valois is the mother and she is uh, 
also involved very much in the upbringing of the baby king. Mm. But I wanted you to take a minute because there is a point, everybody, in the book where Dan describes about the coronation of uh, uh, Henry the Sixth. When I mean, he's still seven years old, I guess, around then. Uh, so this is what this is his yes. English coronation when he's still a, yeah, a very young, a young very boy. young man. And this was a very interesting part of the book. So how did that coronation take place, and what prompted it? Uh, what prompts that coronation is a crisis in France, essentially, brought on by um, the sort of irate French or the Armagnac French who are in the south of France, um, while the English rule the north of France, to put to simple terms. Uh, and, of course, the French aren't very happy about this at all. Uh, so there's an attempt to fight back against the English, and it comes ahead of the Siege of Orléans, famous because Joan of Arc turns up, okay? Uh, and this starts the process of the English being gradually kicked out of France. Um, and in response, so Joan of Arc turns up at the Siege of Orléans and um, great success for the French, and eventually the French heir, the Dauphin, is crowned as Charles VII as king. And that prompts a response in England where Henry VI is then crowned as a child to sort of bolster his kind of royal authority. But yeah, it's a it's very is strange... Is he crowned for both, in Westminster, crowned for both fronts, even though they're, they, they are saying that the other, Char that Charles is pretender to the throne because he's really the king of both fronts and England still? Uh, Henry VI is crowned in Westminster as king of England. They subsequently take him to Paris, not to Rome, to Paris to crown him King of France. That's happened a few years later after Joan of Arc has been. Um... Yeah. So, what is the process of crowning him in England as the King of uh, England at Westminster? So, there's an enormous amount of ritual, which for most coronations we still have the records of. Um, there's a lot of processing, <laughs> right? <laughs> a lot of processing, a lot of kneeling down, standing up, and having clothes put on and taken off. Um, but I, I suppose the essential part of coronation isn't the crown going on your head, as we'd think of. It's the anointing, because that's the thing that really can't be undone. Uh, and so that's anointing with holy oil, which is in a sort of holy vessel, and it's come from a holy place, sort of, right? And it, it's put on your breast, and it's put on uh, various parts of the body, including on the head. And when the oil is put on the head, it's kind of wrapped in, uh, in linen, and then that has to be kept on for a number of days. I think it's about a week, um, which is... Well, it's quite unpleasant. I mean, I, I like to wash my hair once a day, sometimes even twice. Uh, I certainly don't put oil on but it. It is the rapidly. Middle Ages. Well, we know <laughs> it is the Middle Ages, but people were cleaner than we assume in the Middle Ages. Okay. And, and Henry IV, for example, and this, this would be Henry VI's grandfather, uh, another king of the 15th century, let's say, um, had a terrible time when he was anointed, apparently because he kept this stuff on and then ended up with kind of lice infesting his hair when he took it off. So it's... That's, that's not part of the coronation ceremony. You don't have to have lice. You're still the king if you don't have lice. Uh, but th anyway, th so the, the anointing is the essential part because once a king is anointed, that cannot be undone. Think to the Shakespeare's Richard II. This is the sort of the crux of the problem when it comes to deposing a king. How do you undo this kind of sacred ritual that would just put the king, in a sense, closer to God than any other human being? It's a very tricky subject. And so the anointing is the one thing you can't undo. And that, that, that's still true today. You know, there, there is this sense. People always say, oh, is Elizabeth II going to abdicate and give sort of Charles a run at the, the, the throne? But, well, there, she has been anointed, like every other monarch before her. That's a process that can't just sort of be undone because you want to put your feet up and watch EastEnders <laughs> or what, you know? Or play with your dogs. Or play with the dogs or whatever, you know, <laughs> whatever she wants to do. So it wouldn't her. be something that they would even consider? Today? Because, yes. 
No, she would even consider as a as a monarch because she's taught that this is her. Well, they would have to be extremely. Um, uh, uh, there would have to be extreme circumstances for her to do it, because it's it, you don't take it lightly, even today. You know what's interesting to me is how much sh the, of Shakespeare like is is right. I mean, and I, I felt that when because what we sometimes it's hard to distinguish what you know about the Middle Ages or what you know about the court from what you've read or seen in a Shakespearean play. And as I go through and read your book, there's there's a lot that's right, but there was some. Well, there's a lot that is right, right. seems similar to Shakespeare. The Shakespeare is true to history, I should put it that way. Not that your book is right. Um, but what I thought was interesting is the Joan of Arc legend um, is always discussed and rarely written about in the way that you wrote about it in a really full historical context about exactly what her role was, how she was received by the British, what the French thought of her. So let's talk a little bit about Joan of Arc, if you could, and talk a little bit about the role she played in ultimately beginning the push to get the English out of France. Well, uh, there is an amazing book about Joan of Arc coming out here in the US next year, I think, by Helen Castor, who taught me. Okay, So she's just written a brilliant biography of Joan of Arc, uh, which is really cha going to change the way everyone thinks about Joan of Arc. Uh, but essentially, Joan of Arc turns up in the late 1420s um, claiming to have had visions sent to her by God. There are these voices which are telling her to come and save France and get the Dauphin crowned and chuck the English out. And she turns up um, and meets the French court, and they're very sort of wary, really. What is this? This is just, this happens quite a lot, mad kind of peasant girls. <laughs> All boys turn up, and there are tons of them. What's interesting is there are quite a lot of these in France really? at this time. Yeah, there's a bunch of people kind of going around. Oh, I've heard voices. You know, I've got to do this, that, and the other. And um, both before and after Joan. So there are historical records of people showing up at the court, yeah, yeah, yeah. claiming to have seen yeah, or heard. There's, there's several of them, but, um, but they weren't burned at the stake, so they don't get to. Uh, they weren't burned at the stake. Um, or they weren't. They weren't successful. taken. They weren't taken seriously, and they weren't as successful. Uh, but the period of Joan's success is, is a very short period, you know, we're talking months through. I didn't uh, realize she was su that successful at all, frankly, well, until I read your book. Of, she turns up um, and is sent, being sent to the Siege of Orléans in 1429 is a test. Right, if you hear, okay, if you hear voices, off you go then, prove it. Uh, and it appears to work because the Siege of Orléans is um, relieved dramatically, Joan is at the heart of it, and her sort of uh, approach to... Um, the business of fighting is to sort of shout at everyone around. It's attack, 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 and never stop attacking. And that's great to start with because uh, the English are in somewhat disarray. They've lost a key commander at the, the Siege of Orléans. Uh, and they're on, they're on the back foot. There are some disagreements between them strategically. And they're kicked out of Orléans, and then they're kicked out successively of, of towns um, further down around the valley. And then they start to be kicked out of parcel of territory after parcel of territory. And it would appear that Joan of Arc, with her sort of flag and her kind of uh, the armor and the, the, the pudding bowl haircut, I mean, we've got her with long hair here. This is, we had the picture of Henry V earlier. She probably would have had more of that kind of pudding bowl cut. Anyway, but the Yeah, I thought that was a great description. It's true, you <laughs> know, bowl on, not yeah. sort of slip around it. That's how you do it. My, I used to have one of those when I was a little boy. My mother used to put the bowl on my head and cut all the way around it. Uh, it wasn't in tribute to Joan of Arc, and that doesn't explain why I'm interested in this period, I should add. Um, anyway. So noted. Noted, right, good. So, so 
what were we talking about? Joan we're talking about Joan and the fact that she was very successful. And the, the thing that I thought was very interesting is that the response, both by the French, but particularly by the English, was to be more offended by the fact that she was wearing men's clothing than mm. that she was a very effect that she was effective in attacking them, and that that was seemed to be the the thing that most dismayed them and wanted them initially to the fact that she was wearing men's clothing and that that was against the law at the time. Well, it, it's a sort of it's a it's a much bigger taboo, obviously, than it is today. Uh, it's subverting kind of gender roles. It's um, it's sort of a bit of a joke, and they all kind of abuse and laugh. The English kind of abuse and laugh at, at Joan when she turns up, and successively throughout her her short career, she's abused and laughed at for wearing men's clothing. Um, but of course, the, the joke doesn't last very long because she is very successful, and. Um, and the English are successively pushed back, and her appearance does seem to coincide with a period of success for the French, uh, which would imply God's approval, uh, and a series of defeats for the English and their Burgundian allies. When I say the French, I mean the southern French, the Armagnacs, uh, who would appear to be out of favour with God. So, you know, th there's not a lot of laughing after all. So let's talk about now the other part of the the saga starts with the young king, Henry VI, who is growing older, but you, um, Dan gives an amazing description of him and also the role that his mother is to play in the upcoming history of, uh, of the court and her, uh, Catherine. And I think that's very interesting. But first, let's talk about the development of the young king, because it seems that he never quite recovers from starting off as, as an infant. And the way you talk about his personality, it, it's rather striking. And I actually just wanted to read this one thing here that would remain all his life a highly impressionable and suggestible king, impassive about serious matters of public and national policy. And then you quote from his confessor, uh, John Blackman, that the older he grew, the more his unusually limp and often downright vacant personality became apparent. And that, I thought, was just an amazingly good description, something you don't often find in a book, a historical book. I mean, that's a storytelling. So look, tell me some more about why this king never seemed to develop into a real leader. And is that based on the fact that he took over, that there were so many people running that country for so long that he never got it back? Well, you've got to think it must be a very unusual situation to, be, to grow up as king. And I think if you look over the whole of this period, the kings uh, who become, who are boy kings, tend to have quite difficult reigns. Uh, that's true of Henry III. It's true of Richard II, who ends up deposed. It's certainly true of Henry VI. And I, I, it, it's, I suppose it's speculative, really, because it's psychoanalysis of, of 500 years ago. Uh, so there's a limit to how far you can go, but you, you, you've got to say that growing up being king, number one, you never see anyone else do it, right? Do, you do it well or do it badly. You're sort of learning on the job and, and never get a chance to see anyone else's mistakes or anyone else's successes. The broader point to make is, I suppose, that Henry VI illustrates the terrible lottery of monarchy, uh, particularly in this period where the king actually matters and the personality of the king really affects the fabric and the politics of the country. Henry VI grows up just fundamentally unsuited to kingship. He, we all know there, there are people who seem to us to be sort of natural leaders, and there are people who seem not to be. Uh, great if you're a natural, you know, if the, if the f first type of person becomes king, terrible if the second type of person becomes king. But Henry VI grows up to present a particular problem to the English that they haven't really had to deal with before, because they've had bad kings in the past who are what we call tyrants, 
okay, who misuse their power, who, let's say, over-govern. They've never had a king, really, who under-governs, who doesn't seem to want to do it, who does, sort of takes just the last bit of advice he's given, um, can't really uh, make effective decisions domestically, certainly can't lead an army. I mean, Henry VI, they never bother. They send him to France to get crowned, and that's it. Never bother even to send him with an army. It seemed like he didn't want to, anyway. Well, didn't want to, very, uh, you know. Not terribly interested in that. Interested in history, more of like an academic, I Well, mean, interested, in very, very pious, certainly very religious. Um, probably responsible for the founding of, uh, of King's College and uh, Cambridge and of Eton. Um, Blackman, his eyes are great sorceress personality, who's his confessor, who has, okay, a vested interest in playing up how pious Henry was, but nevertheless some of these little details ring <laughs> very true, so he sort of always dresses in kind of dull, sort of dark, quite sober fashion with farmer's boots on, they say. Now we have conflicting reports saying he actually quite liked to dress up grandly. On the other hand, there are these brilliant uh, stories that um, he couldn't stand to see uh, naked people and he went to, to the baths in a sort of uh, a spa town once and saw some sort of naked flesh and oh my god so he had to avert his eyes and run away didn't like swearing okay really hated swearing and, and blackman says the worst oath that would pass his lips was forsooth and forsooth and i'm sure you th you know we, we like to think everyone walks around in the old days saying forsooth <laughs> bring me a cup of tea you know but uh, but really uh, we have this sense of a gentle slightly otherworldly certainly unworldly uh, figure just not cut out for the for politics at a particularly dangerous and difficult time because of the developments in France. Okay, so you know it's very interesting when you read like the confessor's portrait of the king. I mean, do you have to look at it's sort of like being a journalist, I suppose. You have to look at the motivations of everybody that's writing about the king and 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 then dissect what might be true and what might be false about what they've written about him. Yeah, history is journalism of the past. I mean, history is. Uh, source analysis, it's um, rigorous examination of your sources, it's building a narrative out of a lot of information. Uh, that's why, you know, I think it's more and more important to teach history to kids in school, right? Because you're teaching them really critical skills for today's world, where we're bombarded with information. You've got to know what, okay, who's telling me this? Why are they telling me it? Uh, what can I believe? How do I create narrative? Well, that's, that's history, and then you write it up as a good story. So, I mean, I do a lot of journalism as well as history, and I find the two things overlap very, very uh, neatly. And it's certainly that's the approach I take to writing. Yeah, and I think you're very critical of different sources, and, and you mm. actually expose their various motives so that it, it, the person who is actually reading the, no, in reading the book can, it feels like a novel, I mean, that's why I slipped into it, but the person reading the book can decide for themselves whether or not they trust a certain source or they don't trust a certain source and, and, and make an analysis because it's all there on the page, what the motivations are of what your source would material is in the person who wrote it. Um, let's talk about Henry's mother, um, the, like, the femish, sort of lightweight, kind of, you know, vacant king, and his mother, Catherine, and her choices about marriage and how she ends up affecting history with those choices. So we think of uh, Catherine de Valois, Henry V's wife, you know, that's where she's buried near Henry V in Westminster Abbey, but of course, Catherine de Valois' greatest contribution, really, to English history was her second marriage because she stayed in England, despite being the French king's daughter and the, the brother of the uh, sister of the Dauphin. She stayed in England and she hooked up with a very unlikely character, her Welsh servant, a guy called Owen Tudor, whose origins are somewhat mysterious, but we know the family's from North Wales, Anglesey sort of way. Um, 
he's come, he came into a service. There were all sorts of stories. They met at a dance, and he got drunk and fell over, and his head landed in her lap. She saw him <laughs> swimming, and he looked sort of like, I don't know, um, uh, Colin Firth in, uh, what is it? <laughs> What's the, Pride and Prejudice. Pride and Prejudice, yeah. Okay. Um, Mr. Darcy. Mr. Darcy, yes. that's the one. Uh, all of this is, is later myth. But what is certain is the two of them meet, uh, and they produce uh, several children, two of whom... Uh, Edmund and Jasper Tudor go on to have a, a very important role in the Wars of the Roses and Edmund's son Henry Tudor becomes Henry VII. So this weird little line of half Welsh, half French sort of uh, oddballs, you know, Edmund and Jasper are Henry VI's half-brothers so they're kind of educated well and brought into, um, into court circles. Uh, Henry Tudor is looked after because he has this relationship to that side of the family. But they're really an odd little sort of footnote in history. It was really surprising to me because yeah. I, I, I had never known about this. And she's marrying somebody who doesn't even have the same privileges and rights as the Englishman. No, I mean, it, at the point that Catherine de Valois marries uh, Owen Tudor, Welsh men in England are denied, Welshmen in Wales and Welshmen in England, are denied most of the legal rights of Englishmen because of the Welsh rebellions that had taken place earlier in the 15th century, Owen Glendower and so on. Um, they were legally very restricted, and Catherine sort of says, oh, I didn't, I didn't realize. You know, there, there's a, she sort of makes a play on the naivety of, of, of being French and not understanding, oh, that's how it works. But there she is. She takes up with Owen Tudor. And I don't think many people know that bit of the Tudor story at all. You know, we tend to think Tudor start, all right, Henry VII came along, won the Battle of Bosworth, uh, and then Henry VIII, and, and he wore you know, he got fat and wore a big codpiece. You know, that, that's, that's when Tudors start in most of our minds. But actually, what I've done in the book is, is trace the generations before, because that's where it's really fascinating. It is fascinating. And when, when you look at it, you go, how did this ever happen? How did these people end? Because they end up, basically, it's last man standing, okay, towards the roses. <laughs> We're skipping ahead in the story, but it's last man standing. It you is. end up with the Tudors sort of... All right, we're kings now. You know, it, it really is, uh, you wouldn't have, have put money on it. Well, let's talk about Richard, too. Um, I guess I don't want to, I don't want to, let me see if I can do this in a way. Um, uh, let's, I guess maybe I should talk about um, uh, Margaret of Anjou first, okay? Mm, and when um, uh, Henry uh, gets married um, to Margaret, what is her role in in uh, in the in history and as his wife? So Henry the Sixth, a lot of Henrys, right? Yes. Henry the Sixth, um, farmer boots and uh, yes, I guess forsooth, I forsooth. Let's 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 tag in with that. Forsooth, Henry. forsooth, forsooth. Okay. Um, Henry the Sixth is married in the mid 1440s to Margaret of Anjou. Which you would think have brought about, this is, I guess, the real question, why didn't this bring about peace with the French? Because this was supposed to be the marriage to like calm everything down and where it, the, the French would accept this and there would be an end to the wars, but there were demands made by the English that were untenable to the French um, despite this marriage. So there if are, you could explain, why didn't it work? There are some, there are some deep and dirty diplomatic politics going on with around this marriage. But essentially, the English, I suppose, end up railroaded into marrying the king to uh, a sort of second-ranking French kind of lady related to the, 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 the royal court. Um, it's tenuous. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it, they, they get sort of railroaded into it, is the best way to, to put it. And um, a deal is done 
by William de la Pole, who's running government in the 1440s, sort of from behind the scenes, to give back certain key parts of central France um, to the French in return for doing it. It's a but it's a terrible deal. It's a terrible deal because when the English find out that this deal's been done, they go mad. Uh, the French just accrue more and more of, of the land. They're, they're stripping away more and more of the land the English have conquered. And what you end up with in England is Henry VI married to uh, an extremely headstrong, um, extremely capable in many ways, um, queen who is determined or becomes determined to, to defend her, fam her family's rights, the crown's rights, at all costs. And this becomes important because she then, this brings her into conflict in the 1450s with the king's cousin, Richard, Duke of York. And the Wars of the Roses, as we know them, are about, in their first phase, a political struggle between Richard, Duke of York on the one hand, Margaret of Anjou, the queen, on, and her allies, the Dukes of Somerset and others, on the other side, uh, warring to control government because the king is obviously hopeless. And then in 1453, he's also mad. He goes mad in 1453. Catatonia, uh, total just sort of shut down, basically. So she's in charge. Well, there's a battle to see who's going to be in. Uh, there are, uh, there's a struggle for control, uh, which by 1455, the king wakes up from his madness, but he's, he's as useless as ever. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm kind of gliding well, through the story here. But no, look. Well, I want to give people a sense of, of what, we're, what you're writing about. So go ahead. So they can Henry, read it Henry in its VI, detail yeah, well, in the book. Sure. Read, read in the book. It's, uh, it's all described in, in, in beautiful prose. Um, <laughs> Says the author. <laughs> Uh, and it will now be described in, in elegant uh, speech by me. Right, uh, here we have Richard, Richard, Duke of York on one side, and uh, Margaret of Anjou and allies on both sides. Uh, 1455, this leads to, it finally breaks out into skirmishes. So we have the Battle of St. Albans, 1455, two more battles, uh, Bloorheath and Ludford Bridge. And at the end of this sort of skirmishing, um, Richard, Duke of York and his allies, including Warwick the Kingmaker, as he will be known, hasn't made any kings by this point, but that's who he's going to be, uh, and uh, two of Richard's sons are forced into exile because they lose a battle. And Margaret, left in, uh, by the stage 1459, Margaret of Anjou, the queen, um, is in a state of such fury with them that they are attainted. So they're created legally dead, basically, in their absence. In effect, there is, there is no reconciliation possible uh, in this argument anymore. And that, when we get to sort of 1460, changes the, the nature of the struggle, which at this, to this point has been political. And it turns it, quite briefly, into a dynastic feud. Because in 1460, Richard, Duke of York, who's been exiled and attainted, comes back. And now he's no longer claiming to take control of government to be the king's chief counselor. Uh, because he's been backed into a corner and he has no options, He's claiming instead to be king himself. Now, this is a big problem because you now have two rival dynasties, two rival groups, both claiming the, the crown that they are the rightful king. And that's when you enter a sort of a really short, sharp, nasty, bloody uh, phase of the Wars of the Roses, which is truly dynastic. Not all of this Wars of the Roses, not all the Wars of the Roses is what we've been told by the Tudors, which is red rose versus white rose. It's not all like that. It's been political. But in 1460, it becomes dynastic. You have a series of battles, including the Battle of Northampton, uh, the Battle of uh, Mortimer's Cross, and eventually 
leading up to the biggest battle, the bloodiest battle ever fought on English soil, the Battle of Towton in 1461, where 28,000 men are said to have been killed on a single day. Okay. Over to you. <laughs> All right. Now, what I wanted to ask you is if you could explain the Tudors, and you mentioned this very many times, have told a different version of history. So right. how is it different? And when you refer to it's not the war, red rose versus the white rose, explain what you're referring to. Okay, so the, the vision we've been fed of the Wars of the Roses, and this, uh, this is there in, if you watch The White Queen, if uh, I suppose it underpins really how we understand Game of Thrones. It's certainly there in Shakespeare. It's certainly there in Shakespeare. In fact, Shakespeare's probably what's responsible for crystallizing this and making this the accepted story of the Wars of the Roses is House of Lancaster, that's Henry VI, Margaret of Anjou, the Somersets, the Tudors, on the one side. House of York, Richard Duke of York, he's killed at the Battle of Wakefield in 1460. Thereafter, his son, Edward IV, his brothers, including Richard III. And on the one side, Lancastrians are red rose. On the other side, York is white rose. And then they fight, and then they all kill each other, and then the Tudors make it up because... Uh, Henry Tudor marries Elizabeth of York, red rose, marries white rose. That's where we get the Tudor rose from, concentric rings of red and white roses. That's the Tudor version of the Wars of the Roses, and it makes it very simple. In fact, it makes it uh, so simple that you can understand it just by looking at the Tudor rose. Because the minute you see the Tudor rose, you go, oh, yeah, red and white, and then they fought, and now they came together. <laughs> it's like a football match, a violent football match, right, where they all uh, swap shirts and hug at the end. It's that... And it was, but it wasn't like that. I mean, that is such a gross oversimplification of the battle of the wars of the 15th century, which are much better summed up by uh, a, a phrase used or a line written by the Milanese ambassador Sforza de Bettini in 1461, who's in France. This is just after Towton, the greatest, bloodiest battle of the Wars of the Roses. Poor old Sforza de Bettini has to write back to the Duchy of Milan and tell them what's going on in England, because they're quite interested. Oh, <laughs> uh, you know. And he's, he's despairing because no one seems to know what's going on. There's been a political struggle. It's been a dynastic struggle. Everyone keeps getting killed. And he writes back and he says, I wish the country, being England, and all its people would be cast into the sea because I feel like one going to the torture every time I have to write about English affairs because you never hear the same thing twice. This is uh, Sforza de Bettini about. This is a, a much more realistic, authentic vision of the Wars of the Roses than we get from Shakespeare. But what Shakespeare presents us, and Shakespeare wasn't really being revisionist. Shakespeare's vision of the Wars of the Roses is, think about Henry VI, part one, where he gives us this rose bush in the center of the stage, and the nobles stand around plucking the roses from it, red, white, red, white. They're lining up in teams against one another. That's Shakespeare's vision. Now, it wasn't really revisionism on Shakespeare's part. That's just reflecting the sort of vision of the 15th century that had grown up in the 100 years since the Wars of the Roses, quote-unquote, had finished. Um, but it is, it's, it's much too simplistic. So we do, because we have political phases, we have dynastic phases, not very long, actually, most of them. Uh, we have a phase of the Wars of the Roses once Edward IV has, has won the Battle of Towton and become king, which isn't really, even though there's a rival court in the, in the form of Henry VI and Margaret of Anjou, most of that phase of the Wars of the Roses. It's taken up with Edward fighting amongst his allies, Edward versus Warwick the Kingmaker, uh, who briefly chucks him off the throne. Edward comes back and kills him. We have Edward versus his brother, George Duke of Clarence, who causes him a lot of problems 
in the 1470s. Well, Clarence's reward for that is to be uh, supposedly drowned in a vat of sweet Malmsey wine, Greek wine, right. which is supposedly done in the Tower of London. Uh, these problems, which run roughly from 1464 through 1478, don't really fall into the analysis of red rose versus white rose at all. They fall into analysis of uh, Edward IV falling out with his allies. So there's this Shakespearean vision handed down through and, and, and sort of uh, developed through the 16th century and really still understood, how most people understand the Wars of Roses today, is, is, is really oversimplified and doesn't That's really doesn't where I started through. from. Right. When I started but that's where everyone starts yeah. from. And that's where I started from. And, but, but as soon as you start reading history in the right order, you see that, um, well, for example, the greatest sort of sign of all of this is there are no red roses during the Wars of the Roses. Lancastrians don't go around waving a red rose. The white rose is a Yorkist badge, same as several other Yorkist badges, the Sun in Splendour, the Falcon and Fetterlock. The Lancastrians don't use a red rose. That's brought to the, the party, if you like, in the 1480s by Henry VII, mainly for the purpose of fusing with a white rose to give us this symbol, this dynastic kind of explanation of what's just happened. So it's all very carefully done in the, in the early Tudor period. And by the time you get to Shakespeare, this is just what everyone thinks happened. Well, I was curious about Richard, the Duke of York, mm. and how he claimed to have inherited royal blood. Because that, I mean, after, you know, trying to, to be the, the next king, how does that work? Like, I mean, why is it, how can he make that claim? I mean, how did he push himself in there? I'm not quite sure what the, that got a little bit confusing for me. So we need to go back uh, to Edward III in the 14th century had had a number of children, five sons. And uh, one was a black prince who had Richard II, that line died out. Uh, then you, you have John of Gaunt, who was Henry IV's father, Henry V's grandfather, Henry VI's great-grandfather. So he's from the grandfather. Who's Duke of Lancaster. So that's why we call these Lancastrians. Uh, however, there were other sons, Edmund Langley and, uh, and Duke of York, from whom Richard, Duke of York, can trace his descent on two sides. Oh. On his mother's side and his father's side, he can claim descent from Edward III. There is some dispute as to which of these lines holds precedent over the other. The fact is, until 1460, people had, had, weren't really very worked up about that, including Richard, Duke of York, not really. Not okay. really sort of sitting there drumming his fingers, thinking, looking at his family trees, going, oh, I should be... That's not, that's not okay. why this happened. It's, it's a sort of post-fact justification for what Richard Duke of York is, has to do. He has no choices in 1460 but to rebel in, uh, and rebel in the most serious way possible, i.e. to come and claim the crown for himself. Okay. So he finds a, a whole bunch of reasons why he's doing it. All right, we're getting close to the end here and I want to talk to you about your TV series that's sure. based on the book. So what is it that you're working on and can we, is, is it going to be possible for us in the States to be able to see that? Because usually we can, I mean, through some way. But how have they translated the book into a television series? Okay, so we've taken my last book, The Plantagenets, which is sort of the first part of this epic medieval um, saga, uh, with Channel 5 in the UK, um, which is a big network station owned by Viacom. Um, isn't everything. Isn't everything. But it's big network station in the UK. We have taken the Plantagenets. We've made a four-part series hosted by me. So a flavor of it is me going blah, you know, <laughs> telling you in eloquent terms all about the, the stories of the Plantagenets. Uh, and with a little bit of drama, reconstruction, but big cast, big sets, high production. It's really cool. 
Okay. That's all I can say. So we've got we've got the story of Henry the Second and Eleanor of Aquitaine, Thomas Becket. That's one episode. We've got Henry the Third and Simon de Montfort, which brings the origins of Parliament. We have Edward the Second and the sort of violent feuds with his wife and his uh, lovers slash favourites. We have Richard the Second, this crazy kind of feud with his cousin Henry Bolingbroke. That's each episode. Um, I think it's going to international sale. I would hope that it would come to the. It comes out in the UK in November. I would hope it would be out in the US next year. Okay. All right. Well, I want to thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. It was fun. I mean, I really like hearing about the history. I think that um, I just want to tell the audience too that you there is a uh, a map at the beginning where you could tell who is who, related to whom. It's very much kind of like a Tolstoy thing where you know who all the characters are except for these were real people. But it's all mapped out and you get a sense. But I have to tell you, it's almost like you're living through this period while you're reading uh, Dan's book. It's really incredibly good writing, incredibly good research, and like I said, very fair in terms of explaining the motivations of the different sources that it's using in the book. So I love this one. I think I might have even liked the Wars of the Roses like a little, like more than the Plantagenists. I think there's a certain amount of gore in this one that's kind of. <laughs> I can't choose. It's like we'd be like choosing between my children, right? I can't, I can't no, choose. There's some excellent torture in this one, I have to say. No, there was some really good stuff. And I, I mean, and just incredible detail about things that don't necessarily impact on who ultimately gets the crown, but just a feeling of living in that time that you managed to get. So I want to thank you for being here. I want to encourage everybody to read this book. I know last time that we've all enjoyed, and everybody enjoyed Dan's last interview here, and I hope you'll come back the next time. And I want to thank you all. You could tweet to Dan if you have a question. You can tweet to me and write your comments, and we'll see you next time on Media Mayhem. Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.